0: All right, good morning. We're in the second week of a series entitled Light, in which we are looking at how Jesus is the light of the world. Around Christmas time every year, it kind of gives us a, a moment to reflect naturally. We're going to talk about Christmas stuff every type of year, and it gives us a time to reflect naturally around the birth of Jesus and the true story that God has taken on humanity so that he might bring light into the darkness. Last week, uh, this is really a three-week series. Last week, we looked at how Jesus, being the light of the world, brings us hope and brings us hope for our future. We, are, we were reminded that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome. And in fact, the darkness doesn't even understand the light. And that our hope, eventually as Christians, is one day to live in a restored and renewed earth. Last week, we really looked at the idea that Jesus transforms the reality in the future. But this morning, as we kind of turn our attention, as we get closer to the Christmas series and Christmas Day itself, I want to turn our attention to looking at how Jesus being the light of, a, light of the world forces us to make a decision right now in the present, a decision that has the power to transform our reality in the here and now. Today, we'll be looking at how Jesus is the light of life. As we get started this morning, I want to begin by reading two short passages. One is a statement by Jesus that is recorded for us by the Apostle John, and one is a statement by the Apostle John recorded by his experience with Jesus himself. The first is found for us, and I've got them up on the screen so you don't have to turn there, but the first, these aren't our main passages for this morning, but they kind of orient our thinking around where we are going. The first passage is John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever for, uh, follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What Jesus is saying here, and he says it as explicitly as possible, is that whoever follows him has life. The interesting part about this passage in some ways is that it comes right on the heels of another passage. It's semi-controversial and it's pretty well known uh, and famous. It is the passage of Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. And so when this passage, when Jesus says these words, you can almost picture the crowd of Pharisee men dispelling as they stand above this woman who has been caught in adultery and who Jesus says, to you who threw the first stone or to you who've never sinned you go ahead and throw the first stone and as these judgmental probably tall and leering men walk away Jesus then addresses the crowds that are left and says I am the light of the world whoever walks in darkness and they just saw an act of incredible darkness didn't they whoever walks whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. It stirs our imagination, and I think for every single person, it doesn't matter who you are, it causes us to wonder, what does Jesus mean when he says he is the light of life? And as we go about our day, day by day, and we start thinking about what we experience and what we come in contact with, I would imagine I'm not the only one that as we hear Jesus' words, we think, what would it look like to walk alongside the light of life and as John considered that and he wrote his epistle many years later after the events that Jesus has just recorded or that John has recorded, John can only speak of things in these terms you know we don't just believe the Bible because it's in a book that's gilded with uh, gold pages and it's got a leather binding although ours don't these are hardback and we give them out to whoever ever wants them it's cheaper that way but We don't just believe in Christ because it's in the Bible. We believe in Christ because the people who wrote the Bible came into contact with Jesus himself, and the words they write about Jesus are a true reality or a true reflection of their experience and of the very nature of who he was, as inspired as they wrote those words by the Holy Spirit. And I've always been fascinated by this passage that the Apostle John writes, and it's the very beginning of his epistle. And he doesn't refer back to some book or to some passage, but he says this, 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That's That which was from the beginning, he's referring to Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched with our hands all three, you know, three of the five senses, what we have seen, what we have heard, and what we have touched. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life, for this life appeared. And when he says appeared, he means came into history, and we have seen it in history. And we testify to it, and we proclaim to you this eternal life, the person of Jesus, which was with the Father and appeared to us. We proclaim to you, What we have seen and heard, so that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, as just an introduction, you see that John desperately wants people to understand the reality of Jesus and to place their faith in Him so that they may have fellowship with us. This is not the kind of fellowship just come over and hang out and we'll have good food. This is the kind of fellowship where we will have a lasting bond forged through a common belief in who Jesus is and what he has done. A fellowship that will bring you eternal life. And so this morning, as we go to our main passage this morning, it can be found for you on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It's found on page 860 of the Blue Bible in your seat in front of you. While these two passages we've just not looked at are not the main passage, they begin to orient our thinking around the historical reality of Jesus, which is the whole reason we celebrate this Christmas season. John's words are not just powerful because they are in the Bible. They are powerful because they are a reflection of what he saw, touched, and heard in the life of Jesus while he spent time, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God in history. And so this morning as we look, I just want to orient our thinking and read this passage and start to ask a couple questions of it that then begin to tell us exactly the nature of how the true light works. And John records them here in John 1, through 1-18 in a way that is so clear and so simple. Because as John says at the ending of his gospel, He wrote these words in his gospel for the specific purpose that those who hear them might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing, they would have life in his name. So let us hear from the words of the man who was in contact with Jesus for three years during his earthly life, who deserted him at his death and was willing to follow him into whatever path after his resurrection. Here is what John writes years later as he reflects on his time with Jesus. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Through, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man who was sent from God, whose name was John, referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, but he has came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. For he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children, that is, that were born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but children that were born of God. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God but the one and only Son who himself is God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, He has made him, God the Father, known. So this morning, we're just going to see three truths from this passage specifically about the light. And as we look at these three truths, we are going to look at them in terms of exactly what John the Apostle meant to communicate with us. The first truth that I want to bring to your attention is that the true light is Jesus, the true light is Jesus. And that may seem just absurdly simple, right? Like the kid who gets asked in Sunday school, what is Bushy with a, you know, what is Bushy and collects nights and they say it sounds like a squirrel, but it must be Jesus, right? It seems absurdly simple, but to say the true light is Jesus is actually not a simplistic statement at all. And there's really two reasons for it. First of all, when we think of light, we think of a thing, don't we? We don't think of a person. You know, I can just picture my dad thinking through this and thinking, a true light is an incandescent. For some reason, my dad just has a really hard time with CFL bulbs. I don't know why that is. They've got mercury in them, apparently. Maybe now he thinks LEDs are better, right? I don't know. I hate LEDs because when you buy Christmas lights and you put them around your tree, it's like that bright white light, even if you try to get the yellow kind, and it, it's terrible, yeah? Yeah. But to say the true light is Jesus may sound simple to us because we sit in these chairs and we're in church and we expect the answer to everything be Jesus. But it is unusual to say the true light is Jesus for when we'd say the true light, we would expect a thing. We would expect a source that would give off light. But John says the true light is Jesus, which immediately brings us to the second thing that's kind of interesting about this statement. We've gone from something that is a thing to a thing that is a person. And so now John is obviously using some kind of figurative language. And he is intuitively baiting us to ask, what kind of person is Jesus? The true light is Jesus, right? If I were to say, the true satisfaction to your appetite is me, you would wonder, well, that's weird. I thought it was a steak, but... How can you satisfy my hunger? The true light is Jesus baiting us to ask ourselves, what kind of person was Jesus? And John has four answers for us right in the text. They're very simple, but if you were to ever put your head on the pillow at night, and perhaps you're a person who has not yet believed in Jesus, and you were to wonder, I wonder why I'm here. These are normal questions. I wonder why there's something instead of nothing. I wonder why I'm here. I wonder if God is real. These are questions that are not just new to us as we put our heads on the pillows at night. They're questions that for thousands of years people have asked. And John is trying to give you an answer. And so as we look at John 1, 1 through 18, I just want to draw your attention to four things that if you were to ask the Apostle John, who spent three years with Jesus in person, who witnessed his resurrection and who then spent 40 days with Jesus in person after his resurrection, here's what John would tell you Jesus is like. The first thing John would say is that Jesus is eternal. He has always existed. We see in verse 1, 1 and 2 of John chapter 1 that, Jesus said, that the, the apostle John says in very famous words, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. This word here, for word, uh, it's become very simple in Christian terms. And we often think of when we hear the word in the Christian sense, we often think of the word of God, right? We think of the Bible and we think the word. But John uses it in terms of Jesus himself, the person. Now, if we were to go back into the time of Jesus, when John was writing after his death, and we were to say, what did the original audience here, when they heard the word, word. It was a very common concept that the Greeks used in philosophy, this, this language of the word. And it stood for the ultimate meaning in life, or the ultimate meaning in reality. And if you studied anything about the Greeks, the Greeks who were really uh, into philosophy, the most wealthy Greeks would sit around, and they would just talk about the word, the meaning of life, the ultimate reality of life. And they thought, the Greeks, that the word was unknowable and it was the unifying principle of all things. And when John writes, in the beginning was the word, he is referring to this idea that they already understood. And he is saying, Jesus is the unifying principle of all things that makes everything else make sense. It is kind of, uh, you know, like one of those things you see uh, in some of those movies. Uh, I think National Treasure has one of these, and you need they have these, these codecs, these codes. And if you know the one word, it'll make sense of everything else, and then you can unravel the code, and you can know how to get to where you need to get. Obviously, I understand these things at a very high level, yes? <laughs> Jesus is kind of what John is saying, is the code, the password that makes meaning of everything else. In life, And Jesus, John says, was with God in the beginning, and in case we would be confused, he is God. Meaning that Jesus dwelled with the Heavenly Father throughout eternity from eternity past, and there came a time, not when Jesus was created, but that when Jesus took on humanity and entered into this world. For Jesus is eternal. The word of God is not an attribute of God. The word of God is God himself in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself. But John goes on and says, baits us into asking who exactly is Jesus? And he says first that Jesus is eternal. And he says second that Jesus is the creator of everything. We see this in verse 3. He says, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that was made. Jesus, or John is saying about Jesus that he gave existence to everything. He's saying that matter is not eternal. It's not that what we see around us has not always existed in some state or another. There was a time when nothing existed except God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And into that presence of nothing, God spoke and created everything everything. And so everything that we see according to the gospel of John and according to John, who spent time with Jesus, everything that we see in this earth is a result of the man who he spent three years and who he witnessed die and rise from the dead. The third thing that John tells us is that Jesus is the God-man. We see this in John 1.14 and at the very beginning of the verse where John says, The Word became flesh and He made His dwelling among us. If we were to think back to John 1 1 and 2, we would think the Word, who is eternal, had a moment in history where He took on humanity. Jesus became the God man. And in becoming the God man, according to the writer John, the Apostle John, Jesus took on humanity without losing anything any of his nature as God himself. And so when Jesus walked about on earth, we are to say everything he did, look it, there's the God-man doing that. When Jesus cries because his friend Lazarus has died, it is the God-man who cries. And when Jesus, at a, a wedding of his friend, turns water into wine, it is the God-man who does the miracle. Everything that Jesus did was an expression of perfect humanity and perfect divinity in one person. The text makes it really clear when it says, the word became flesh and then it said it made its dwelling among us. The language here, uh, in the original language, almost has the idea of tabernacling. And the original audience that would have read this passage would have immediately thought back to the time when Israel spent uh, those 40 long years in the wilderness and they built this tabernacle. This tent of meeting in which they were to go and make their sacrifices. And God himself, we are told in the Old Testament, rested on the tabernacle and his presence was there. And it was seen in smoke and it must have been something wonderful and terrifying to behold. But John is using that same language to a people, his audience, that would have understood. The word became flesh and he made his tabernacle among us, his temporary dwelling place just as the tabernacle was a temporary dwelling place. And later, Paul will tell us that the tabernacle cannot hold God, but God is everywhere and his glory is everywhere. But Jesus, according to the apostle John, took on humanity as the God-man and for a temporary time, spent time as a human being who became God in flesh, perfect humanity, perfect divinity. The last thing that John tells us, which we see is wonderful, and it is, is that Jesus is full of grace and truth. We see this in verse 14 and verse 17, where John uses this language, full of grace and truth. If we were to think of God becoming flesh, there might be some of, them, some of us who would think that is a terrifying thought. Because now God will come and he will see me as I am. Which he already can, by the way. And I'm in trouble. But John makes sure to make clear to his original readers and to us today that Jesus is eternal, he's creator, he is the God-man, but he is also full of grace and truth. He's full of truth. There is no refusal to deny reality in what Jesus does. Like every time my child brings me a picture, Daddy, look what I made, and I say, oh man, that is the best piece of art I've ever seen, right? That's a refusal, that's a denial of truth. Jesus came to this world, and he saw us for exactly what we are, and he walked into the darkness, and grace, he gave us unmerited, we didn't earn it, favor, and he refused to condemn us but instead gave himself for the benefit of humanity. And so if you were in desperate need of help, and the God-man came to earth, you would not want a God of exclusive truth, for you'd be condemned. You would not want a God of exclusive grace, because you'd be told you're okay when you know you're not. But we have a God full of grace and truth, who recognizes that we are worse off than we could ever imagine, and who refuses to condemn and loves us anyway. So Jesus is the true light. He's not a thing, he's a person. But the gospel writer, John, goes further than this. And he tells us that the true light not only is Jesus, but that the true light shines on everyone. And this may seem simple as well, but it is not. We see this in verse 9 and 16, and I want to point this out to you because there are some that may struggle with this concept. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In verse 16, out of the fullness we have received grace in uh, in place of grace already given. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of the grace that has been given. According to the Apostle John, every single person in the world Has experienced the light of Jesus shine on them. Now, that may seem hard to believe. If the light shines on everyone, why is this world full of so much darkness? I would suggest to you, and I would like to challenge you with this thought imagine what the world would be like without the presence of light. Imagine what the world would be like if Jesus had never come into this reality and shown into it. We are promised as we saw last week that Jesus will one day return, he make all things new and he make all things right. And all true believers long for that day as we're taught to in the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are taught to pray and we long for the day when Jesus comes and restores all things. But the truth is right now the light of Christ shines on everyone. Imagine what this world would look like without the light shining into the darkness. Last night as we met uh, in the chapel, a gathering met for prayer, the the Vespers prayer, and we talked about how, what are some things that are of, of darkness that you encounter, that you are hoping to bring the light of Christ into? But don't you see that there are groups of people, not just in our church, not just last night, for there are all kinds of you in this room that are doing the same thing that you just didn't sit in the chair with us last night, who are prayerfully bringing the light of Christ into a world that is so full of darkness. And there are times when darkness wins the battle, but we are all the time bringing the light of Christ to bear on this world in ways that people who do not even understand are experiencing. Some of them are big, some of them are small. But imagine with me what this world would be like without the thousands of churches that participate in Operation Christmas Child. Imagine what the world would be like without Angel Tree Christmas, without those kids getting those gifts. Imagine what the world would be like, and I wonder sometimes, even me, what my sermons even accomplish. But imagine what the world would be like without countless sermons, not being preached by me, but being preached all over the world that are transforming reality. And while the darkness is not completely put out by the light that shines in each one of us, we are promised that one day the light will in the person of Christ. Imagine what the world would be like if we did not, as Christians, enter into the darkness, shining the light of Christ. Imagine what the world would be like without Jesus coming in the first place to make it possible. Jesus entered into our darkness to shine the light of God into this world, the entire world, every single human being. But one day Jesus will return for a second time and he will forever separate light and darkness, forever. We don't like to, some people don't like to hear this talked about, but that separating is the difference between heaven and hell. And heaven will be a world of only light, And in hell will be a world of only darkness. Not a world where Jesus goes around commissioning the devil to, you know, pinch people in the butt with pitchforks, right? That burn. But a world where people who reject the light and embrace the darkness will experience the darkness in utter completeness. And then a world where we, who have placed our faith in Jesus and embraced the light, will experience nothing but light. The true light shines on everyone. But this brings us to our third and final point. And it is this, that the true light that shines on everyone can be received, but it can also be rejected. Look at with me verse 10 through 13, and I want to point this out to you very clearly. While the light of Christ shines on everyone, that light can be received or it can be rejected. He was in the world, the incarnate Son of God, the eternal creator, who was the God-man, full of grace and truth, was in this world, and though the world was made by him, the world did not even recognize him. He came to that which was his own, his own by rights, because he is the creator, but his own did not receive him, Although the light shines on all, some reject. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he became. He gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of the will of God. When Jesus, the light of the world, entered this world, There were some who utterly rejected him. We think of the Pharisees. We think of the Romans and together who crucified Jesus. But even now, all together, all the time, people hear the message of Jesus and reject him. And just like then, now we reject him for different reasons. Some reject Jesus because they feel threatened. And you may be here today and unsure whether you believe in Jesus, but you kind of intuitively know that if you were to place your faith in Jesus, that would mean some life change for you. And some people feel threatened by the reality that there is a supreme God, full of love, yes, full of truth, yes, who you are responsible and accountable to. Some reject Jesus because they feel threatened. Some reject Jesus because they feel hurt and misunderstood. One of the most common things that uh, you hear and I I hear about why people struggle with Jesus is because there's so much darkness in this world, isn't it? And one of the reasons and one of the thoughts that kind of launched this series in my mind originally was that verse in verse 5 of John chapter 1. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can neither overcome or understand it. But some have come into encountering the darkness and they struggle and they are hurt and they misunderstand God. But there is not a single person in the world that believes in Jesus, that thinks that this world is the way it should be right now. The darkness is everywhere. And it is a result of our own rebellion and sin that causes the darkness to thrive. And so when bad things happen, and they do, they happen to good people, they happen to bad people, they just happen. There's ISIS, there's mothers and grandmothers getting cancer. There's all kinds of darkness in this world. And when they happen, they are not a result of God. They're a result of the darkness. And God came into our world to change that reality, and one day he will, but until that time, we can choose to place our faith in a God who loves us that we don't always understand why he does what he does and when he does it, or we can choose to place our faith in ourselves, refusing to feel like we're having one being hoodwinked, I guess. There's this great novel, I refer to it every so often. It's by Graham Greene. It's called The End of the Affair. And I always think about about it when I think of um, people who are struggling with this issue. But there's a part in that novel where there's a gal who is struggling with her belief in God. And she is challenged by the thought that it's all a fairy tale. And she starts to think, but if it's all a fairy tale, then there's the force of God and there's the force of the devil or evil. But she says, why do I become so frustrated and angry at the good force versus the bad force, the devil? And there are so many out in our world who see darkness, and there's not a single Christian in the world that says darkness doesn't exist. But why do you get angry at the wrong source? Why do you get angry? It'd be like if I took my son out for a car ride and a drunk driver got hit me and my son died. And I got angry at myself for going on a trip to the grocery store versus at a drunk driver that hit me. Doesn't that make sense? God, seeing the pain in this world, came into it to transform it. And he says that you, he does not transform your will and make you a robot. You can reject the person of Jesus or you can receive him. Now, what does it mean to receive Jesus? John could not be more clear. It's one of the more well-known verses in our New Testament. John says in verse 12 of chapter 1, yet to all who did receive him, and he has a parenthetical statement here, doesn't he, which tells us exactly what it means to receive Jesus. To all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of Of God. This Christmas season, what does it mean to have life through Jesus? It means to transfer your trust to the person and the work of Jesus, who he was and is, and what he did on your behalf and one day will do, and to be transformed by that reality. It is as simple as saying in prayer. God, I know that I cannot make things right on my own, but I ask you to give me faith and to place my trust in you as my Savior from my sin so that I might have eternal life. And that's all it is. And when you begin that journey, it's as if every decision we start to make, we begin to ask ourselves, what would it look like in this circumstance to trust Jesus? and we start to live out that reality. And John says that that belief that then transforms and and results in trust, that transforms not just us when we come to faith, but then transforms all of our decisions after faith. John says that that is eternal life, which begins now. One of my favorite verses, and this is the last thing I'm going to read to you, and then I'm going to be done. One of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament It's found in, it's called the High Priestly Prayer. And it's the prayer that Jesus prays right before he is about to be crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's what he says. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all the people that he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, that's present tense, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life begins now, and I long for that day as the Lord prayer teaches us, and we've already said for him to return and to separate light from darkness. But we experience eternal life right now as we continue to live in the reality and the presence of Jesus and what he's done for us. And this Christmas season... There's nothing better than that, yes? Let me pray for you. Father, we ask that you would transform our hearts and minds and make us ah, overwhelmed by the beauty of Jesus. Help us to place our trust in you for what we do not understand and help us to radically do what is right, even when it's hard. This Christmas season, I pray that you give every person hearing me joy, despite whatever they're going through. In Jesus' name, amen.